You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Radical Australia on 3CR 855 AM. Today's interview contains content that some listeners may find upsetting, such as child sexual assault, suicide and Aboriginal deaths in custody. For support, please contact the Blue Knot Foundation on 1300 657 380 between 9 and 5 any day of the week. That's the Blue Knot Foundation on 1300 657 380. Lifeline is also there any time to take your call. Their number is 131114. That's Lifeline on 131114. Now stay tuned for Radical Australia. Tomorrow morning let it rain, tomorrow morning let it pour, tonight we're in the groove together, ain't gonna worry about stormy weather, gonna kick all trouble out the door, beat out all trouble and drunk, beat out all Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR, streaming live, streaming on 3cr.org.au. This program is podcast. You'll be able to access the podcast in the next 48 hours by going to 3cr.org.au. There are many podcasts of uh, previous interviews. Once again, Kelly Whitworth, our wonderful producer, has found us an extraordinary guest from the land of the churches down at Adelaide. How are thou, Sharon Dev Singh? I'm I'm good, Joe. I'm good, Kelly. Thanks for uh, having me on, and uh, just wanted to pay respect to the kind of country I am. I'm um, usually based on Wurundjeri country, but I'm here uh, working and supporting a, a family during their sons and brothers' uh, inquest hearing at the moment. All right. Let's before we, we get into the uh, into your life. Um, can you explain exactly what you're doing in Adelaide? Um, I'm, I'm doing what I've done sort of in the last 30 years, which is walking alongside families of people who have been killed by the state, killed as a result of state violence or state indifference, and also family violence. Uh, gendered forms of violence. So the, the inquest process is a you know, highly violent and abusive um, form of legal abuse and you know, secondary and tertiary abuse. And for almost 30 years, um, up, up until sort of now, um, I have been walking alongside families and uh, holding up whatever they've needed to do 
to speak back to the violence and to uphold their, the memories of their loved ones. So that's ranged from, you know, doing intensive legal work inside and outside the inquest process to um, doing direct actions, which we've been doing here, um, filming and photographing all of the work and all of the whatever the families need me to, to do so that there isn't, so that their loved one and they themselves are not defined by the violence and the, the murder that, uh, you know, culminated in the, in the killings of their loved ones. Um, yeah, talking to media, telling different stories, uh, you know, being a presence in court, you know. Mm. But very much, um, you know, I'm, I'm deeply implicated and, and complicit in the, the the violence of the legal system as well because of uh, what I've chosen to do. Right. Well, obviously, this is a long journey which uh, began somewhere. So what year were you born? I was born in 1974, and I was born in in, um, in Malaysia, mm. you know. Um, so seven years after its independence from... Uh, British colonial rule, and five years, uh, I was born five years after massive state-sanctioned race riots, which in many ways kind of determined that, uh, you know, my family couldn't live in Malaysia anymore, my father. After 1969, I started looking for places outside of Malaysia where he could, could take his family or what became his family? Uh, it didn't feel there was a future as a as an ethnic minority there. Uh, he was nearly killed in those race riots. He was saved by his by his students. He was a teacher. He turned his car around, and uh, and that was one of the trajectory points. Maybe um, you know, five years before I was born, mm-hmm. um, but there there were there were many. I think. The history of resistance to colonialism in Vietnam, the the Vietnamese victory at the NBN coup, all of these things that shaped my father's life kind of flowed through into my own. Uh, so the, the the first sort of six years of my life was in Malaysia um, with with my family who were intact at that time, and my older brother and my younger brother. Um, and now looking back on in, in terms of trajectory points, you know, one the, kind of the most kind of annihilating but determining experience was, you know, experiencing child sexual abuse as a very young person. Mm. And that kind of now having done the work and still doing the work now, you know, 40 years on, you know, play, has played and continues to play a very... Um, determinative role in what I've done in my life and also what I haven't been able to do. But I'll, I'll come back to that and kind of mm. explain why, mm. why I've been uh, so engaged in the fight for the right to live. Mm. Mm. What was... Um, are your parents still alive? My father's passed and my mother's still alive, but I, I don't have anything to do with her. Right. Neither do my brothers. Yeah, so I come from a very fractured um, and multiply fractured family mm-hmm. um, and fractured across time and space and right. through violence and abuse and uh, mm. 
mm-hmm. other things. So, and you know, the, the migration story is is only you know one part of that. Right. So, where did you find yourself after uh, six years? This is what nineteen eighty. So, my dad got a scholarship to 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 study. That was his ticket out. And in in nineteen eighty, and he got a scholarship to study at Monash Uni in Clayton, and um, he had had to leave Malaysia, you know, when he was about 16, because he graduated from high school, the first person in our family to ever go to school, and so he he was born and grew up in a really small town uh, near what became Singapore, but because he was an ethnic Punjabi and ethnic Indian, uh, and the Indian, the Malaysian colonial state and the post-colonial state was a, you know, one where ethnic superiority was um, state-sanctioned and state-supported. He had to leave and go to Singapore to study, mm-hmm. and then he returned and uh, became a teacher and lecturer. As I said, after '69, he was looking for ways out, and he and um, he and my mum did did travel and. Um, Spent some time in the U.S. in '72 and '3 in Texas, and then in Washington. Uh, and I think all the time, my dad was, you know, looking for, looking for a way out, looking for somewhere where he and his family could lead kind of viable, um, safe lives, you know, and, yeah. and fruitful lives. This mm-hmm. is, the, you know, this is the story of migration. In my family, it goes back. You know, many generations we have, on my father's side, this is the only side I know, you know, we have moved and moved from, from, you know, we haven't crossed borders, borders have crossed us, you know. Right. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm part of that continuing, uh, right. that continuing trajectory. So mm. when, when he got that scholarship, which I think was $350 a month, um, he came here in June 1980 into the midst of the Melbourne winter and one of his I think one of his first but he, he was able to rent a property and um, one of his first purchases was a colour TV and that was a really fateful purchase he wanted to watch the Moscow Olympics right. colour we never had a colour TV so and my, my two brothers and mum and myself arrived about a month later and, um, yeah, he, he had kind of not quite got around to buying a lot of plates and sauces and all that. So I had my first meal in, in, in this place um, on, on the back of a saucer. But the colour TV was a big, was a big draw card because it was my, my insight into what was happening in this country and what was happening internationally right. from about 1980 onwards. So... Uh, um, did you, did, it, it, it was one of the principal modes of my politicisation and my political knowledge about what was happening in Indigenous struggle, what was happening in Palestine, in Lebanon, in you know, in international global politics. All of that was kind of in front of the TV, mm-hmm. and even watching cricket with my two brothers and my dad. You know, and when the West Indies were so dominant, that was itself a lesson in in uh, anti-colonial politics. 
Mm. Um, so I, I really, at a young age, but being a very old kind of soul, I really kind of soaked up the enormity and the um, the visual power of many, many struggles going on going on at the same time. Right. You know, the Springbok tours, the eighty-two uh, anti-Commonwealth Games protests up in Mianjin, um, and then and then Aboriginal deaths in custody mm. from eighty-three onwards. And well, I was. You don't, eight, you don't, yeah, that's what I mean. You're eight, nine years old. So, mm. did, did you go to a local primary school when you came? I did. I went to Monash Primary mm-hmm. um, initially, and then, um, and and really struggled in school. Um, like I was, in one sense, able to cope. In another sense, socially, it's quite 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 shy and quite struggling, and not knowing really why. Um, coming, coming, coming to Melbourne, you know, I'd never seen white people beyond really, you know, TV. Mm-hmm. Um, my father, who was in his early forties at the time, he was the only person I saw who wore a turban and a beard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wore a white turban. So very quickly, you know, the experience of street racism and uh, racism at school and um, was, was very immediate, you know. And, you know, I was concerned. I would spend a lot of time with my dad and um, we would walk a lot as well as, you know, he bought this V6 Kingswood and, you know, so I'd sit in the back and that's how I learned kind of to read English, you know, by sitting in the back of the Kingswood and reading um, street signs and so on. Right. How did, um, did did religion play a large part in your early life? No, no. I think the the type of um, Sikhism that was kind of practiced or respected in Malaysia was a very open and liberal form, um, and a very personal one. So there was no sense that um, religion. You know, was was a central tenet of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, for whatever reason, I was just let go to pursue my own thinking and my own living and my own life. You know, I think my parents were going through much larger experiences and issues, and I was able to get through school all right. So I kind of took it on myself to try and uh, grow myself up, which was, a, um, at the time, made sense. Um, looking back, um, eight-year-olds shouldn't have to grow themselves up because they're going to make mistakes, and that, I did. Right. Did, um, did you find in primary school that uh, you excelled or were good at anything? Um, or did you just muddle through like the rest of us? I, I didn't muddle... I didn't muddle through because I, I was a real, like, I used to devour reading mm-hmm. and I used to read, like, newspapers and I'd have a long, ongoing conversation with my father about what was happening in the world and he always kind of treated me as an equal. He, he never said what others had said to me is, you know, you wouldn't amount to anything and you wouldn't be able to change anything unless you 
rose to the top. You know, that that type of kind of really degrading talk was never came from my father. So, and it's, it was obvious to him, I think, that I was very deeply affected by things like the Sabra and Chitila massacre. Um, and, you know, and Sabra and Chitila was really my first lesson in, 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 in total state impunity. Mm. You know, and, and the support of empires like the United States in, uh, ensuring Israel's impunity in Palestine and in Lebanon. Um, I think the nuclear arms race, again, was really something that I was ter- intensely fearful about. Um, and it was, you know, imminent, you know, as a threat because of Reagan and uh, and also the coal miners' strike and, and, the, the, and the violence of Thatcherism and the Falklands invasion. But, you know, it was obvious, I think it was obvious that I was, a, you know, a spongy kid, Right. You know, like I soaked it all up, and yep. what what I, I didn't, couldn't judge, and couldn't kind of provide for myself was a strong intellectual framework and a strong emotional framework for myself that says, you know, eight year olds shouldn't be dealing with this much pain and fear and horror. You know that mm. you know that children have a right to their childhood. Um, but I think that, you know, the childhood sexual abuse kind of taught me one thing, and that is that that's all I was good for, mm-hmm. or all I am good for, you know, is to sit in unbearable, immense suffering and take it all in, um, and then, you know, that's, that's, that's all I was right. so when you... um, worthy of. So when you progressed to high school, was it still a local high school? No, no. My brother got sent to a a, a private school, um, for you know, to support him academically, and I just got bundled in with him. Right. <laughs> and, and which you know, I, I I had, you know, I mean, I grew up in a time where there was still sectarianism between Irish Catholics and you know Protestants and so on. It hadn't disappeared, you know, that's that's quite a revolutionary um, rupture that's happened in the last 20, 30 years that that's all but disappeared on the surface. But my understanding of class and local and domestic politics was pretty surface-like, so I, I didn't understand what being sent to a private school would do to me, you know, and I don't think anyone, I don't think people think about that enough, you know, that children have a particular moral compass and a political compass already, and when you send them to a place which is deeply antagonistic or annihilating of those politics, then you're, you're really, you know, you're really jeopardising the fundamental safety of those children. And, and and my experience of going to that school was was that you know the extreme kind of genocidal racism and also the the misogyny, you know. So I got called, um, you know, my name was converted into terms like Kun Dev and uh, Bung Dev, mm. you know, so a reference to the genocide of Africans in America and, you know, the genocide of mob here. Mm. Um, and then the, the, the misogyny of being in a, you know, for a few years a private boys' school where women were spoken about only in the context of rape and abuse. 
you know, we're talking about the late 80s. Um, and I had no, you know, like I, you know, so to be kind of not not immersed but drowning in that, you know, having your head forced down in that, you know, was very damaging to me. Um, and I and I wasn't able to perform at the top of my class. You know, I was never right. never got prizes, and I mean, never be able to rise above that. And um, and I start, you know, started sliding into very very severe depression and suicidality by the time I was twelve, thirteen. Mm. Mm. Did any Did anybody notice? That you're in this, I, I in this condition? I don't think so. Mm. Yeah, I don't think so because, you know, I had, I had such a good front because I had a lot to um, I had a lot to put a lid on. Right. And it was only when I was 15 that I had a very severe crisis and, uh, in September, October 89 and um, ended up being institutionalised in, in an asylum, in a locked ward when I was 15. And at the time I was the youngest person in the state to have been put in an adult lock ward in mm-hmm. Rundle. Right. Um, and so in that, in that nine years, you know, 80 to 89, I, I, you know, in addition to everything, in addition to, you know, trying to get an understanding of issues around optional death in custody and land rights and even things like prostitution law reform because of the need inquiry and uh, British nuclear testing, uh, you know, all of the current affairs and four corners I used to watch and and, and almost memorise. I'd also wanted to to be other things, you know, like I was struggling to be other than um, just immersed in all of that. But Mm. once that door locked behind me and it slammed and locked... um, that was the end of that. that. You know, I put my dreams aside and knew that I would um, would be in the fight for a lot of fight in with fellow institutionalised people. Mm. Did how long were you locked up for? Uh, I was initially locked up for a short time, three days, and then I was certified again, so involuntarily treated and mm. voluntarily mm. T- treated at the time. Um, so seventeen and a half months. So was it was, was it mainly medication? Was it mainly medication or was ECT uh, involved? It, there was some medication, but I was kind of labelled as treatment resistant, you know, because I wasn't responsive to medication, right. and the only thing they kind of had left was uh, doing shock therapy yeah. ECT, yeah. Mm. which I kind of, you know, by the time I was sixteen and seventeen, I was kind of begging for, you know, I really was struggling to, to survive that that time. Right. And, um, yeah, but I was, you know, I, I went from the what what was called bins, you know, they called the Rundle and Mont Park and Royal Park bins because you were disposed of there. And none of us, especially the younger people there, none of us were expected to survive. Hmm. And, in fact, that, that's what propelled me out of the system is because my friends were dying in the system. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there was graffiti in... Like, I was moved into the adolescent system, which was tiny at the time and still is, you know, deeply under-resourced, you know. And there was this saying that was, marked, you know, like etched into the furniture, you know, we are the kids our parents warned us about. Mm. But, um, yeah, we were all sort of thrown together. And 
some of us were criminalised. I, I wasn't. I was just pathologised, uh, very luckily. Mm. Um, but it was the suicides of my friends that, um, like, compelled me out of the system. And also, uh, I'd, I never really returned home. Right, you know, so I left home. You know, I was taken out of home when I was 15, and then I was living independently from when I was 18. Right. Mm. So did you complete your secondary education? I, I, I didn't. In high school, the last year of education I finished was year nine. And then every year I tried after that, year 10 I was certified, I was taken out. Year 11 I went back, I couldn't do more than a few months. And um, so I, I did go back to TAFE and attempt to do my VCE and I did get a pass, but I wasn't able to right. complete full, you know, like the... I'd, I'd lost my ability to write when I got locked up. And, you know, in terms of getting, doing assessments and exams and all that, that's crucial. So I actually haven't finished a year of, full year of education since year nine. Right. Um, but uh, when I got out of the system, um, you know, I, I really moved, was drawn to activism and this is, you know, Jeff Kennett was uh, elected in, I think, October the 2nd, 1992. Yes. And, you know, he moved to, um, you know, engage in radical privatisation of prisons and the assault on schools and just, you know, wholesale assault, you know, the closure of facial infectious diseases with hospital. I'd grown up during the HIV pandemic, which is ongoing, so that had a radicalising impact on me as well. So I... Yeah, it was, it was like, it, it wasn't a choice, it was a way to live and a way to resist. And uh, that was my involvement in kind of organised work and activism and advocacy. Mm. This was what, at 17, 18, once you were deep? Yeah, I was, I was nearly, I was 18, 19, that's correct. Right, yeah. so, so what type of activities were you involved in at that particular I mean, point the in time? The first activity I was involved in, in a really small and humble way, was the Fairly Women's Prison Vigil, mm-hmm. which was this six-month vigil that ran from June to late December to try and stop uh, Jeff Kennett moving women and children and trans mob who were in Fairly Women's Prison into the uh, Supermax Prison for men in, uh, called uh, K-Division. They actually took an Aboriginal man's name for it, but I won't use that name. Uh, and there'd been a fire and a protest in 87 where five men had died. And it was a horrific uh, supermax prison based on the Mays prison in, in Ireland and in, based also on the Marion prison and a prison in New South Wales called Katinkle. And Jeff Kennett thought that would be the appropriate place to move, you know, women, kids and trans mob mm-hmm. while they built a private uh, private prison out in Deer Park, which is the first of three private prisons. So that that was a successful campaign. It, it was it, it's kind of counterintuitive in terms of being an abolitionist campaign, thing to end the punishment of, of of women. But it was also a kind of rearguard action that if women were again sent to men's prisons, they would be again mass deaths, which had been the case, you know, in the eighties and in the early nineties. Women spent more time held in men's prisons, women and trans mob, and 
there had been six women die, and they were still women in Barwon Prison in a management unit at the time, 92, 93, and 80% plus of those women are now dead now. Mm-hmm. So really, it was about a fight, a fight to live, you know, but also a fight against the prison. You're listening to Radical Australia on 3CR 855 AM. Today's interview contains content that some listeners may find upsetting, such as child sexual assault, suicide and Aboriginal deaths in custody. Please feel free to return to us at 5pm for The Boldness if you would prefer not to listen to this week's show. Were you living, uh, were you living by yourself at this particular point in time or you yeah, moved in, into a community of some time? No, I lived by myself. I lived in a, um, a really small bungalow at the back of a, a house in um, Kilda, mm-hmm. and I was I'd been put on sickness benefits when I was in hospital because obviously I couldn't work or couldn't even look for work, um, and um, I was yeah just fortunate to get that tiny it was a one bedroom studio bungalow and. Um, there were very few people, but a lot of cats and opossums. So I looked after <laughs> 16 cats and opossums. And I just lived there for five and a half years. I, um, yeah, and I played a very background, humble role in that type of activism. Really, I was making a lot of mistakes and learning a lot of hard lessons and doing the hard yards, um, which I kind of still am. You know, tell us, tell and, us, tell us some of those lessons. I think I think people would be interested in that because we all do well, mistakes. We all make mistakes in this business. Well, not listening, mm-hmm. not listening is the the, the the mistake I, I mean, you know, continue to make, but made a lot early on. Um, so not understanding the significance of what people were saying, and also not understanding the significance when people weren't saying things. You know, and the importance of confidentiality and discussion and time to think and and saying things when they're appropriate, you know, so look, that might sound a bit low, you know, like fundamental or low level, but it is really fundamental you know, and, and I was I was a, a, a very rare head tail there at the time mm. um, surrounded by very strong queer and lesbian women um, indigenous women, queer women of colour, all of that. And so very quickly, I learned that I was not going to learn very much out of anything coming out of my mouth, and I needed to sit and listen and understand the privilege of being anywhere near those spaces and understand that this is a long, long journey of knowing and learning. And really, it only it took me more than a decade to understand in a structural and strategic and tactical way, excuse the French, but what the guy was doing, you know? So, one of the other... Yeah, at least during this period, at least you did listen and you did understand and it obviously changed the trajectory of what you were doing. Yeah, I think I'm... I, yeah, I constantly... You know, I was learning how to listen. I, I, I don't think I listened. I think I learned how to listen very, very slowly. And and the understanding was a very slow one for me. And is still a slow one for me. And one of the things that came very quickly to me is that I think 
you know, along with the Fairley campaign, there was the Richmond Secondary College campaign, there's the Northland campaign, Fitzroy High, High campaign, and and I didn't, although I was, you know, subsequently lived out north for a long time, I went down to the Richmond Secondary College community picket line on the 13th of December, you know, and everyone had been evicted out, but there was a small community picket line, around 45 of us. And Victoria Police decided to deploy their riot unit there on that on that morning, which is called the Force Response Unit. And the commander, whose name is Morks, said to his said to the officers, "I'm going to blood you today, this morning." So, in a, in a really you know infamous act, one of many, you know they they went and bat and charged, you know, a whole mob of really different people from pensioners to really young people like me and I was hit I was forced back against the fence line and hit 30 times with the butt of a bat but they were beating this other man who I knew to be a teacher in front of me Rodney King Rodney King style mm. and I grabbed that officer's baton and he prided himself as the foremost weapons and baton technician in the Asia Southwest Pacific region but he was so out of control that he was losing items of his uniform and um so when I grabbed his bat and baton, in long, for, you know, less than a second, it was long enough for this terribly injured teacher to get out from underneath his baton blows. Mm. But he turned around and struck me in the head with the baton, with, with the PR-24 baton, which is a sidearm baton, which constitutes deadly force in Victoria Police. Mm. And that, that put me in hospital. But what that did is that, you know, there'd been horrific levels of police shootings and police, you know, what I call police murders in Victoria Police. At the same time, the you know the death, Aboriginal deaths in custody was happening, and the Royal Commission had started. And so, once that had happened, you know, I sort of thought I'm going to learn everything possible about militarised police and how to respond and try and you know understand how these riot squads operate as forms of political repression and how they're linked to the prison system and how they link to colonisation and so on. So those events, um, and, you know, I, I now regret my dad having to come pick me up from St Vincent's Hospital and seeing me, like, drenched in blood from head to toe and with a mm. massive head injury. And But I also was thankful to the nurses in emergency who just treated us and rushed us out of the emergency because they were fearful that the police would come and, and take us away. Did um, you know, my, yeah. uh, was there any legal consequences? Well, there, there was. You know, there was um, there was a, a tort action in negligent tort, um, which I signed on to. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I really didn't know what what I was doing. You know, I didn't know what I was involved in. I was uh, very traumatized and. Um, you know, things like they sent me to see a psychiatrist and, like, I'd just come out of the system. I wasn't going to talk to no fucking psychiatrist. He's yeah. French. Anyway, they sent me to see this guy who's, like, grey-haired and, like, grey-beard. And I just refused to answer questions, you know. It was like an... You know, I treated it like an interrogation because I knew he had the power to lock me up. You know, so I didn't tell him anything about what had happened to me or how it impacted me, and, which was a pretty profound, you know. Mm. And I still impact. I still carry the injuries and the pain of that a day and um, it was only like 15 later 15 years later when I was in an inquest into the death of police shooting of Tyler Cassidy that we had just cross-examined a 
psychiatrist. You know, and he sat next to me, and I realised it was the same psychiatrist. It was Pat McGorry. Right. You know, and this is the bloke that I'd refused to speak to, like, you know, which was kind of justified at the time. But, um, yeah, I had to, you know, doing the work was a way of me trying to overcome my fear, which I don't think I ever have. Right. You know, so it was a, fear was a great lesson, and I was trying to fight fear with fear. And, um, yeah, trying to use resistance as a t- tool of healing from my experiences around institutionalisation. Mm. But it was also a weapon that flowed from the child sexual abuse that I was only, only going to do work that involved extreme pain and suffering. That's all I was worth. Right. And this type of work you've been doing for, the, what, what mm. 20 years, 25 years? It's nearly it's nearly thirty years. Nearly I've, thirty I've years. Now. Right. I'm not able to work anymore. So right. yeah. Well, let's go. Let's go back to these twenty five, thirty years. Now, can you yep. explain exactly what you were doing? Uh, well, not exactly, but give us a, an idea of how you supported people and what things you got involved in. Yeah. Well, I think the starting point is how people supported me. So I was. Uh, in relation to deaths in custody, I was taken under the wing by a um, Wiradjuri activist who's now passed, Uncle Ray Jackson. And I was just a nobody, you know, and he kind of accepted... He allowed he allowed me to be present in his work and to see and witness the way he worked with, with both mob and, and, and non-mob. You know, he worked with asylum seekers, he worked with... Aboriginal families, of course, but he worked across this huge spectrum of issues. Like, he, he was deeply intersectional without even mentioning the word. You know, he worked on trans justice issues. He he just worked across the spectrum, uh, union issues, economic justice issues, and so on. He was able to connect the dots. And he taught me the importance, without telling me, but showing me the importance of doing precisely that. So, you know, when I came up to Sydney to work, he would put me up in his commission flat up in the James Cook building um, and I would listen to him. I would listen to him, I'd listen to whatever he had to say. Often he would talk about, he would talk most of the time about the love of his family, the love for his family and sometimes we talked about the work we were doing, you know. Um, And the, you know, the other activists that I was working for, again, you know, they, they had this intense generosity to just have this young, pesky bloke. Right. Who, yeah, young, pesky, um, bit mouthy, didn't mm. listen too well. Um, yeah, and was just kind of learning the ropes and, mm. you know, that they, they had the generosity of just letting me be present and also not letting me be present sometimes and, you know, when, you know, it wasn't my place. Right. So there was a couple of streams to the work that I started to do. One was, you know, as I said, walking alongside families in Corangal Inquest. So I learned how, well, I already knew how people died. You know, I witnessed it in, in, in hospital and I witnessed in a secondary sense how people were being killed in custody. But... I thought, you know, that 
my work could bring an end to those deaths through learning how the system killed people and using whatever opportunities there were in the inquest system and beyond to try and deter and prevent those deaths. And that, that now I understand that's a completely false and um, benign understanding of the, violent, the lethal violence of, this, of different systems of punishment and genocide in this country. I, I used to think that those systems were broken and that deaths in custody was the product of a broken system. I now understand that the system is operating as intended and mm-hmm. deaths in custody is the, the violent and lethal product of a system working as intended. Mm-hmm. Could you go back to the 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 um, the murder of uh, that young boy Cassidy in Northcote. Uh, how did yeah. you get involved in that, and what and what type of support were you able to provide? Because yeah. I remember I, I went to the funeral, and the family made the decision of having an open casket, so people could see this wasn't some hulking, you know, fifteen-year-old, but a very slender forty-kilogram kid. Yeah, that's right. I I had been doing death in custody work for fifteen years, so I'd been working in police police deaths, prison deaths, immigration, detention deaths, I, you know, what focused on that from about 2000 to 2004, like almost exclusively. And so, and because of my experience before with being a survivor of deadly violence by the police, I just um, tried to learn everything I could about um, police killings and, and ways to disrupt and reduce police killings. So... Tyler was killed on the 11th of December, I'm just trying to think, 1998. And he was killed about 20 minutes on the tram from where I lived. I, I was living out in the north, in, in the res, in reservoir. And I had first heard reports about Tyler's killing a couple of hours after he died. And from what was said, I felt that the way that the police had killed him, that Tyler likely was an Aboriginal child, you know, and also because it was in the north and so on. And um, just because of the, the, the disregard that was being shown towards his family and um, the police holding them to the ground, holding his brother to the ground while his brother lay dying and so on, all of that is, you know, typical of the violent disregard shown to Aboriginal children. But he wasn't. But regardless, because I work with all different types of families. You know, Aboriginal families only represent about one in, about 20% of the work I did. Um, you know, I, myself and Tamar Hopkins at the Flemington Kensington Legal Centre said, whatever support you need, we'll provide. You know? um, so it was about, you know, preparing submissions with the pro bono lawyers, um, analysing the, 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 what we knew of the shooting. Um, which was only 100 metres away from a fully staffed uh, police station at Northcote. Um, and, uh, you know, my understanding of young people in mental health crisis, of course, I'd lived it, I still lived it. Um, and also, you know, the fact that the vast, from, from about 1993 onwards, the vast majority of people Victoria Police had killed were people in deep mental health crisis. Tyler was Fifteen, and he was the second youngest person ever shot by Victoria Police um, outside of a massacre. So the youngest person was actually 
the 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 daughter of the um, the publican at um, at Jerildry, I think, when Victoria Police laid siege in the net, net uh, against Kelly and the Kelly gang, mm. and he was shot dead, and he cried for his mother as well. And Tyler was fifteen, in in deep crisis, uh, and and shot dead by three of the four officers who attended, um, and. So it was a mix of working with the family around media, around strategy, around campaigning, um, working within the system. Uh, that's something I've I've done, like uh, an enormous amount of. Like no, no one can really say you've never tried to work within the system. I have. I've, every every second I've spent in court is working within the system. But I can also speak to the futility and the violence of that. Um, you know, we helped organise the vigil of the first year. And we, we were just there, you know, like there's a saying, you know, we're here, well, I'm, I'm on tap to you, you know, like I, at the time I'd had to make a five-year commitment to every family I work with and saying this is how long it will take, roughly, minimum five years, you know. So, and I will always say, if I'm not useful, if I can't be of any value to you, then tell me, you know, like I'm... You know, because it's important that families are as self-determining as possible, and and that we we support that at every step. This is such a violent, abusive, stigmatizing process where their child is killed and killed again. You know, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I knew where I needed to be in that struggle, and it, it was the same when. Luke Batty was murdered. Like, you know, all I could hear was men ringing up 3AW saying that, oh, that Rosie Batty should have copped the knife. You know, she should have copped the cricket bat to the side of the head. You know, and I thought, really? Really? You you think that's an acceptable thing to say? How about no one copped the knife to the neck? You know, how about, you know, this horrific violence ends? So... I thought, oh, I'm going to pick a side in this and I'm going to make myself available to the family. Mm. You know, and I'm not going to, you know, I've been able to do that till last year. Now I, I physically, mentally can't do it anymore. But for me, it was a, it was a choice. It was a, 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 you know, whatever I knew from all my, because all my knowledge is street learned, you know, is, about, you know, I make it available for whatever it's worth. Right. Going back to, you said, legal support. What type of legal support were you providing? Yeah, so I'm not a lawyer. Mm. I'm a street-trained paralegal. You know, um, yeah, I can't be an... You know, I just refuse to be an officer of the court. Mm. So I would... um, One of the things I would routinely do is put together the legal teams for the family if they didn't already have contact with lawyers. So find the best kind of lawyers... Ensure they were working pro bono, you know, work with them and the family about who are the best barristers, who are the best experts, um, what what strategies needed to be employed, both legal, political, uh, media, you know, you, you name it. To yeah, bring, right. Because there was so little justice potentially afforded in the court process that, you know, we needed to get street justice. Yes. You know, we needed to get justice in the streets, sorry, not street justice, sorry. Mm, mm. Maybe delete that. Um, but, 
you know, courts are not places of justice. No, that's right. Yeah. Now, courts are places of control and violence and power and domination. Yes, but, but, so yes. what, what I was trained to do and mentored to do was, you know, understand from the family what they needed, how they needed, why they needed it, and also what they didn't need, and to support them in that for as long as they needed. Right. How, how did you cope during these 30 years? I mean, this is, this is harrowing work, harrowing work at an interpersonal level. It's not some academic uh, coming in and out, providing a psychiatric port and then leaving and getting paid handsomely. This is, this is harrowing physical, emotional, intellectual work. How did you personally cope? Well, I only understood... Well, I haven't coped. You know, I haven't survived. And I've only understood why I've been able to last this long, you know, for two reasons. One, I'm not Aboriginal. If I was Aboriginal, if I was a black fellow in this country, I'd be dead. My children would probably be dead or locked up if I had any, you know. One of the reasons mm-hmm. I didn't go there was because my fear that my children would be killed. And the other reason is that it, it, it flowed from the child sexual abuse. That as a consequence of that, in my body, the lesson that is written on my body from the child sexual abuse is that this is this is all you're worth doing. You know, you're all all that you're worth carrying is harrowing horrific violence and impunity. That's all you're worth. And, and, and child sexual abuse inscribes on children and adults all of these lessons. You know, and that's, mm. my, that's my understanding about how I chose to pursue this work in an uncompromising and independent way. I wasn't funded to do most of that work. And I think I, did, I had two or three, maybe four years funding out of 28 and I did that so I would be able to work with people wherever they needed me to be and on whatever terms they needed to be, that I wouldn't be told by some manager, you know, or oh, that's happening in New South Wales, or that's an immigration detention matter, or, you know, that that case is not, you know, politically convenient for us at this time. You know, I, I, I kind of dodged and weaved all of that, right. you know, mm. managerial, legal violence, and expediency that is rampant in the, the legal profession, you know, as well as you know, including the human rights legal sector. Um, so I was able to be autonomous and of, and but still of service. Right. Coming back, you said that you're no longer physically and mentally able to continue mm. this work. When did you realise that uh, this is this had occurred? Was there a moment, or was it just a number of different little points that pushed you in that direction? I think they've been... I think I've been realising... Not realising, but but experiencing and also refusing to act on the red flag since 97, October 97. And I've had small and large breakdowns and and I've returned to work or, or because I... I've, I've weaponized the work as a form of self-punishment mm. and self-self-punishment. Um, yeah, it's, it's extremely punitive work, and I've weaponized it as a form of self-punishment because 
child sexual abuse and other violence, you know, requires me to be endlessly punished. Yeah. So that's that's been a pattern, you know. Every I, I don't think there's many years where I've, I haven't had a major either physical or mental health crisis. Mm. Um, and then in 2020, so that's last year, you know, I had a very horrific breakdown at the start of the year. Um, and then a, a, another one four months later, which put me back into the public mental health system, which I'd been fortunate enough to avoid for almost 30 years. You know, and then with the COVID, and I was still doing crisis family violence work and you know which is a lot of what I do you know trying to prevent uh, women and children from being killed in the main um, but by, by 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 September October November I, I wasn't getting out of bed I wasn't eating anymore um, you know the, the the catastrophic impact and my understanding, because I'd done that sexual abuse counselling the year before, mm. you know, made me able to call it finally. And it wasn't an event. It's a process for calling it because um, I'm sort of trying to make a commitment not to engage in that deeply punitive and annihilating work that is right. that consequence of the abuse. I'm not. I'm trying to step away from that. And physically not being able to work anymore mentally not being able to work anymore, mm. not being able to do that vast spectrum of work is, um, you know, my way of saying it's, it's over. Right. So, so doing this amount of work, is it similar to people who survive sexual abuse, you know, um, taking their drugs and alcohol, just try to, you know, just forget for a short period of time? Was it a similar process, do you think? Um. It it, it, it it is. I mean, it is, uh, you know, like what you're describing is self-medicating. Mm. And, and I kind of self-medicated with extremely painful work and being able to hold people in their trauma and being able to give people space to grieve in, in their own presence and my presence. Mm. So a lot of what I did when lawyers thought I was working <laughs> was actually giving people space to grieve and, and giving people permission to grieve on their own terms mm. and to to speak to their terrible terrible loss and the violence and the impunity and also families would often ask me to to look at evidence or do things and then interpret it back to them so they wouldn't have to do that so families would say you know the coroner's not allowed us to to see our murdered daughter because um, she was so badly injured. Mm. Because of that, we don't know what happened to her. Can you look at the crime scene photos and tell us, answer the questions we want and also put, you know, um, you know, tell us what didn't happen as well. So that's what I would do. You know, that's the highest, the most honourable work that I will ever do in my life. Is that, mm. You know, mm. I'm the most privileged person in terms of the work and the life I've led that I've ever, ever met. I don't know anyone who's exercised and been the beneficiary of such extreme honour and privilege. So I I would do those things three, four times a day. I would work with 20 families a week sometimes. I would have 
20 inquests on in four different states. I'll just be awash in that work. Right. You know, and... But the ability to say to families, to give them the answers they need in a, in through supported disclosure in a context of total respect, you know, was kind of the most important thing I, I could do. Mm. And it also reminded me that it was the exact opposite of what I was doing to myself. Right. And have you got any plans for the next few years or now that you've moved out of that type of uh, very difficult yeah. work? Or are you just going to just, just try it? Just yeah, I don't have any plans. I've never no. have. I've never had any plans. Right. <laughs> um, I've never because I never. I've never had any sense of an entitlement to live. Right. No. You know. So basically, you know, like I've gone, you know, by the timetables of inquests and families, and right. that's been my plans. Right. You know, like right. survive till this date, and then right. try and survive till this date and this date. So I've never. Um, this is all kind of new to me, and I right. don't know whether I'll. Um, yes. Be able to hold it up. Right. You may have to refine that colour TV your dad bought for you when you first came to Australia to fill in the time. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. It was. It, it was pivotal. You know, like seeing the Four Corners episode on John Pat. Yeah. Yes. Black Death in yes. Yes. Um, like I, I still, you know, like so many decades later, and John Pat was only uh, seven years older than me when he was yes, murdered. That's right. Um, mm. I still remember it as though, you know, I had this saying, you know, fight fight these battles as though, you know, this is your own family. Right. Look, on behalf, look, I'd like to thank you for sharing your life with us. And more importantly, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the 3CR community for all the unrecognised work you've done over the years because I think, obviously, um, it's harrowing work. And you've done it as a volunteer, which is 3CR is based on the concept of volunteerism. And yes. I think I think we owe you a, a great debt of gratitude, not just the 3CR community, but the community as a whole in this country for doing, providing that support over so many years at such a great personal cost to you. And it's been an honour speaking to you, Sharon. Thank Bethsing. you. I just wanted to, to reflect back and saying, you know, that, 3CR from the 90s, you know, for a good decade was, you know, was like that colour TV was between the 80s and 90s, you know, and the education and the instruction and the learning and the experiences that I've gained, you know, the the honour of being witness through 3CR is, again, part of that unbridled privilege that I've experienced and, and, um, you know, the honour is all mine. All the best for the future. And although you've got Thanks, no, Thanks, all the Kelly. very best for, for your time. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you for having me on and um, all the best for your listeners as well. Thanks for listening to Radical Australia. If you have found anything in today's episode upsetting, please contact the following services for support. Please contact the Blue Knot Foundation on 1300 657 380 between 9 and 5 any day of the week. That's the Blue Knot Foundation on 1300 657 380. Lifeline is also there any time to take your call. Their number is 131114. That's Lifeline on 131114.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.